it's a combination of despair, hopes, expectations, anxiety. Talking to the Interior Ministry troops around the Kremlin, someone said, so what would happen if the order came to shoot you know, into your own people? Would you shoot? And sort of the guy paused briefly and without much hesitation said, yeah, I would shoot. And all of a sudden, like, the door is kicked open in the classroom, and this student runs in, and he basically says in Ukrainian, he says, like, university has been taken over, classes are suspended, revolution is coming. This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. In late December 1991, 74 years after the Bolsheviks had taken power in Russia under the leadership of Vladimir Lenin, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. This momentous event brought an end to a country that for more than four decades after World War II had been a global superpower rivaling the United States. The demise of the USSR occurred less than seven years after Mikhail Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Soon after taking office in March 1985, Gorbachev launched a series of drastic political and economic policies that he hoped would improve and strengthen the communist system. These measures sparked a rush of unprecedented developments that transformed the USSR in a remarkably short time. The political and social change that accompanied Gorbachev's reforms increasingly eluded his control. In the end, far from strengthening communism, Gorbachev's policies of perestroika, restructuring, and glasnost, official openness, led inadvertently to the collapse of the Soviet regime and the unraveling of the Soviet state. This episode of Eurasian Enigma looks back at the major events that precipitated the collapse of the Soviet Union through the stories of people who were there. They'll share their memories, fears, hopes, and expectations, and with 25 years of hindsight, they'll discuss the impact of the fall of the Soviet Union on their lives today. This is Chris Martin, Outreach Director of the Davis Center, and in today's episode, you'll hear from four voices who represent different aspects of our story, from former Soviet citizens to American scholars. This is uh, Hugh Truslow, and I was the librarian for the Davis Center from 2008 to uh, 2016. I was a, an exchange student in Moscow in 89-90, and then I returned again in August 91 uh, on a theater exchange program uh, and was there during the attempted coup. My name is uh, Bakit Beshimov. I grew up in a remote uh, village in Kyrgyzstan, my home country. Currently, I'm teaching as a professor at uh, Northeastern University. My name is Mark Kramer. I'm director of Cold War Studies and have been at the Davis Center for about 30 years. And Oksana Shevel, now a professor of political science at Tufts University. I was born in 1970 in Soviet Union and Soviet Ukraine, so I grew up in the capital city of Kiev. So I grew up with sort of two languages, you know, kind of awareness of my Ukrainian culture, but still being a Soviet person. Gorbachev's initial economic reforms intended to boost the floundering Soviet economy, but it soon gave way to the much broader and bolder program of perestroika and glasnost. Gorbachev thought that political liberalization would be a prerequisite for economic advancement. In 1988, he combined perestroika and glasnost with demokratizatsiya, democratization, including the first free elections the Soviet Union had ever had. As the Communist Party of the Soviet Union gradually relinquished its pervasive grip over political and social life, unrest emerged in many parts of the Soviet Union, particularly the three Baltic republics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, and Moldova. 
the freer flow of information under Glasnost contributed to the decline of central control. Soviet citizens became aware of the full magnitude of Stalin-era crimes, the wide range of social issues afflicting the Soviet Union, such as high rates of alcoholism, juvenile delinquency, declining health and disease, homelessness, crime, poverty, as well as the destruction caused by environmental disasters like the 1986 disaster at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Soviet Ukraine. The spread of this information helped to delegitimize the Soviet regime in the eyes of many Russians as well as non-Russians. It, it was striking how rapidly the Soviet Union changed. It seemed like a society that would always remain an extremely repressive dictatorship. And it continued to seem that way in 1986. But then by 1987, especially 1988, um, there was a real sense that um, forces were moving and had um, set off in motion that would be very difficult to arrest. And so at that point, people were extremely excited about what was going on, ordinary Russians. You would see long lines on the streets for, to buy the latest newspapers, and especially the reformist newspapers like Moscow News. And uh, people would be extremely interested in reading the latest revelations about Soviet history, Stalin's crimes. So I remember we had um, a history course, it was late perestroika period, it was like 88, 89, and the course was still called History of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. But she would come to class and said, okay, we had this lecture of collectivization two weeks ago, cross everything out, I'm going <laughs> to lecture again, like seriously. So we'll cross everything out, and she'll lecture like based whatever came out in the newspapers then. And the thing she had to do it three times. So by the time the exam period came, like nobody knew what the correct answer That's, was. Yeah. So everybody was hoping to get a question on like, Party Congress in 1903, because they haven't, you know, changed that anything. Change exactly, the, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, perestroika uh, really changed the life of a lot of people. And uh, we, uh, first time in our uh, history, got the chance to speak and express uh, themselves. And uh, when I was in Almaty, I published articles how I see the uh, current situation and what we should do in order to improve our republic. And, and uh, when I was a student, I was a part of a group in which uh, people disseminated uh, different articles. We used to listen voice of uh, America and uh, Radio Liberties and so on. And we started to uh, understand that something is really going wrong in this country. It was very clear that something like bad is going on because the Swan Lake was on. And of course they had the Swan Lake on when, you know, something was happening with the regime that didn't want people to know. The stations had changed to Swan Lake. Yeah. And so I feel like I can remember hearing it, you know, in the lobby of the apartment building where we were all staying. Soviet citizens had come to know that when state-controlled TV and radio broadcast nothing but Swan Lake in a continuous loop, something was amiss. The placid ballet belied the turmoil behind the scenes a coup attempt by communist hardliners to wrest Gorbachev, the reformer, from power. On the 17th of August, eight high-ranking Soviet officials who had worked under Gorbachev formed a state committee for an emergency situation and moved swiftly to take over the Soviet government, especially the armed forces and state security organs. On the 18th of August, they traveled secretly to see Gorbachev at his presidential dacha in Foros, where Gorbachev was vacationing. These eight Soviet officials were hoping to restore a much more orthodox communist system and to prevent what they feared would be the disintegration of the country under Gorbachev. 
In traveling to Foros, they hoped they could pressure Gorbachev to go along with the coup, if only reluctantly. They miscalculated. Gorbachev angrily refused to give his consent and stuck by that position. Although extensive planning and preparation went into the coup, the plotters made several crucial mistakes, including their failure to develop a backup plan if Gorbachev declined to support them. Though on August 19th, the coup leaders announced a state of emergency on TV and radio, breaking the continuous loop of Swan Lake, the leaders would find they would be unable to recover from their miscalculations. The coup ended on August 21st as an abject failure. I, I was there uh, after the start of it for the very final days because I was there actually to run a race. I, I wasn't there because I knew a coup was about to take place. And in fact, I got there a day late because uh, air traffic had been suspended. And I witnessed the aftermath of it, including the demonstrations in front of the Lubyanka. The Lubyanka building was the headquarters of the KGB, the Soviet secret police. Crowds had gathered to protest the KGB, and I thought they were going to storm the Lubyanka. In any event, there was a statue in front of the Lubyanka at that point of Felix Zizhinsky, the first head of the uh, Soviet state security service, then known as the Cheka. And that statue had been there for many years. It was a huge very solid statue, and the crowd tried to tear it down, and they couldn't budge it. So then eventually someone knew that the U.S. Embassy was undergoing uh, renovation, and there was a large construction crane there. So they, were, they approached officials at the embassy who sent over the crane. The crane attached um, ropes around the statue and eventually pulled it, and a loud roar went up as Zierzynski's statue came down. But uh, for me personally, I was actually didn't even know the coup was happening because I was working um, as a Girl Scout counts, camp counselor on Long, in Long Island, in East Hampton. <laughs> I got myself there through this Camp America program where you can apply and they bring foreign counselors. Mm -hmm. So I was like in the wilderness, in the tent. The camp just ended and in the airport, this was the first time that I learned. And I was completely in shock because I couldn't, I had no way to call home. Like there was no money or like, or no, like Payphone, I think you couldn't, you know, yeah. call the Soviet Union from some payphone. <laughs> and I didn't know if they were okay or what really yeah. was going on. And then like, I get on the plane, I think I was like close to hysterics and the people realized that I was actually from the Soviet Union and they were like, oh, come stay with us. Like, <laughs> you know, you can apply for political asylum, you know, like that you'll get it because look what's going on in your country. We were very curious, obviously, about what was going on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we obviously wanted to get closer to the action. So we went down to the White House and, um, you know, where the barricades were and that, and that kind of thing. Um, but the, talking to the interior ministry troops around the Kremlin, uh, you know, they were sort of there like, like uh, you know, objects in a zoo, and there were crowds gathering around them. They're sitting on the tanks or the armored personnel carriers, and someone said, so what would happen if the order came to shoot you know, into your own people? Would you shoot? And sort of the guy paused briefly and without much hesitation said, yeah, I would shoot. You realize that if something happened, if a shot was fired or if some people started to panic, that you would be trampled because mm -hmm. there was no way to get out of this mm -hmm. space. And that was actually the only time I remember being very, very being frightened for mm -hmm. my safety. One vivid memory from the coup itself that just uh, has always stuck with me is um, there was one point, and this was you know, early on, when all the tanks and armor was moving you know, into the center of town to Red Square. And there was this moment where the, these tanks and armored personnel carriers were coming down the highway to, to heading towards the center of town, and it was just an endless column of them. Mm -hmm. And they, they kicked up this very, very fine dust um, because they're obviously so, so heavy. And I just have this image in my mind, and I think it stuck in my mind be because that, that dust was very memorable, but also a, a picture I took of a, 
of a young Soviet boy wearing a red, you know, blue jacket. And I'm pretty sure he had a red kerchief and was holding a toy gun. And he's standing there at this bus stop watching tank after tank after tank after tank go by. And it's like this white dust yeah. being kicked up. That's an image that's, ver- that's stuck with me is sort of just how jarring a sight it was. The failure of the coup was equally crucial in giving momentum to several of the Union republics, the Baltic states, Georgia, Moldova, and others, and their drive for independence. In the wake of the failed coup, the drive for independence became unstoppable. When a republic-wide referendum was held in Ukraine on the 1st of December 1991, more than 92% of voters, who made up 85% of the electorate, voted in favor of full independence. Even the ethnic Russian inhabitants of Ukraine voted by large majorities in support of Ukraine's independence. This overwhelming shift in public opinion in Ukraine in support of outright independence had a big influence on other Soviet republics, which were also experiencing the rising tide of nationalism. The um, main separatist movements were not in Russia because it wasn't really a separatist movement in Russia, partly because it so much overlapped with the organs of the Soviet regime. They were both in, headquartered in Moscow, but there were very active separatist movements that arose in some of the outlying republics. They also, again, greatly benefited from Gorbachev's liberalization because in In 1989 and 1990, they were able to hold free elections, and the governments that came to power came to power on explicitly um, separatist uh, agendas. And so for Gorbachev, this posed a real dilemma. Did he want to crack down violently um, and thereby perhaps stifle some of the other reforms he was carrying out? On the other hand, did he want to tolerate what might become the first of a wave. If he, if he, for example, granted the right to secede to the Baltic republics, he was concerned that it would open the floodgates. And then, of course, Perestroika advanced, and this whole issue of succession or possible sovereignty for the republics came in that sort of acquired the whole other layer of both kind of thinking for ourselves and debates within you know, school and public debates, so that was really quite transformational. I think for many people, yes, it was associated with expectations, and even, you know, with Ukraine, with the referendum, and there was a lot of kind of pitch for independence that Ukraine wouldn't have to pay to the central budget, and, you know, the flyers would say we would be like France in no time, and of course that didn't happen. In the first week of December 1991, the leaders of the USSR's three Slavic republics, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, which was represented by future Russian President Boris Yeltsin, gathered in Belarus to sign what became known as the Bielovesia Accords, an agreement that called for the dissolution of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which was to be replaced by a loose union of states called the Commonwealth of Independent States. Two weeks after the Bielovesia Accords were concluded, all 11 republics that were still in the USSR joined in signing the Almaty Protocol, which provided for the final dissolution of the USSR. And uh, when uh, Yeltsin, Shushkevich, uh, and uh, Kravchuk, they decided just to uh, go to the Belarusia and they signed this agreement, my personal reaction was why the leaders of the Slavic republics uh, decided just to separate themselves. And uh, I started to think that uh, probably it's the time when we should uh, start to think about our own destiny. Uh, And uh, I was right, because a few months after that, Kozarev, the Minister of Foreign Affairs at that time, 
uh, in the Yeltsin uh, government, he uh, spoke about the Central Asia as a not a significant area for the interests of the new Russia. On Christmas Day, 1991, Gorbachev announced his resignation from the Soviet presidency in a brief televised address. Later that evening, the Soviet flag flying over the Kremlin was replaced by the Russian tricolor flag, and the next day, the Soviet parliament adopted a resolution dissolving the USSR, bringing a formal end to both the Soviet regime and the Soviet state, a state that less than a decade earlier had seemed destined to remain a global superpower. But as citizens of now sovereign states would find out, there was a steep learning curve in building a new state. I think probably as a little bit of time went by, you kind of realize the historical significance of building a new state because the most basic things had to be worked out. And I actually at the time was working as an interpreter for a Guardian correspondent. So it was really fascinating to meet all of these new political elites, you know, that he wanted to interview. And they really like oftentimes didn't have clue about the basic things like how do you create a currency system? Then when the prices were liberalized, so we go to a store and the store has toilet paper on sale and there is a lot of it, which was like unheard of. But they're not selling it because they can't figure out what the price should be. Nobody told them because it's no longer price control. So they have all these customers willing to buy toilet paper and they have a ton of toilet paper and, and like there are no transaction. And this poor British guy, he just could not understand. He's like, what about if I gave the, you like $20? We need like some resolution, some decree, like which would say... <laughs> You know, what should be the price? Yeah. It was very surreal. So there were many of these kind of surreal moments, I think, of the infancy of a new state, right? As I said, as a young and experienced man, I uh, didn't um, understand the uh, scale of, of the problems uh, waiting us ahead and the challenges uh, which uh, can rise in the next months and years. I can tell you that as a young man, naturally, I exaggerated our uh, ability to create the economic uh, miracle. I uh, didn't uh, realize the scope of the problems uh, of the newly independent uh, state. The collapse of the Soviet Union remains a contentious topic. For some, it meant independence from Moscow's centralized system of control. It also meant an awakening of national identities that had been subordinated to an all-encompassing Soviet identity. In the wake of the Soviet collapse, several former republics, such as the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, became part of the Western world via NATO and the European Union. Georgia and Ukraine have, for more than two decades now, remained on the periphery of membership, but economic strife caused by frozen conflict with Russia has for now stifled those aspirations. For others, especially Russians, the end of the Soviet era meant the loss of an empire and prestige on the world stage. And we were very optimistic. I was very, very optimistic about the future of my country because I believed at that time that better educated Kyrgyzstanis uh, could uh, make country better and they can support the best reforms, they can uh, calibrate uh, the priorities uh, and introduce uh, really uh, good policies. But unfortunately, it never happened. For me, I mean, I mean, clearly, you know, Ukraine remains pretty corrupt, even though we've had a few, you know, these electoral revolutions, and I think there's clearly um, a, a will on the part of the people for clean government. It really has been very, very slow in coming. So, you know, many say that's disappointing, but I mean, and I would agree with that. But at the same time, I think the idea that Ukraine is a separate country, I think that's, I mean, 
that's I think a hope realized. I was um, first of all, I was monumentally happy in some ways that the Soviet Union came to an end, even though I felt torn about it because I think Gorbachev made it a much more livable country and um, achieved an enormous amount for which he uh, received no credit in Russia today. Your Russians today live in much uh, a much freer country even under Putin than they did under the Soviet regime, and that's a direct result of Gorbachev. You know, it, ha it has really nothing to do with uh, anyone else. It is a direct result of Gorbachev and, and Yeltsin. Yeltsin deserves credit for having implemented in important reforms in the early 1990s. But um, so even under Putin and the authoritarian backlash that's occurred now, it is still a much freer country. There are things Russians can do nowadays that were um, impossible under the Soviet regime to read Western publications, to travel abroad, to have... Um, to see Western films, read Western books, you know, all, all kinds of things that people take for granted in Russia nowadays were not possible under the Soviet regime.